0: Ezekiel 28, if you're already turned there, let me very quickly remind you that uh, in February we're going to have a very special night, a couple's, couple's uh, dinner here. Uh, I believe it's on Friday, February the 10th, and uh, our very special guests are Xavier and Trudy Reese from Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Uh, Xavier's been with us uh, Years and years ago, it's, it's been a while since he's been here, but Trudy's been with us. Uh, she's uh, been here to teach, actually, our women's retreats a couple of times, and always a blessing to have them with us. <clears throat> and so, uh, there's a big poster out there. Don't don't go by it. You know, it, uh, it's going to trip you if you're not careful. But uh, read it and get, the, get to all the details and, and sign up quickly because we want to we want to fill this place. We're also going to have uh, Pastor Bob and Mary Ortega from Calvary Chapel of Las Cruces here. They're very good friends. They actually served together under Xavier's brother, uh, Raul Reese uh, when he was and still is pastor of Calvary Chapel of uh, Golden Springs. But uh, it used to be when Raul was uh, at Calvary Chapel of West Covina, California. Many of you are familiar with Raul. So uh, wonderful, wonderful connections there. All right, Ezekiel 28, verses 1 through 5, we're going to begin with that. We're going to look through 10 verses of Scripture this evening, but uh, we're going to see a lot of other verses along with that. Ezekiel 28, verses 1 through 5 will be our starting text. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, or Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man, and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that they can hide, there's no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches, and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. As we get into chapter 28... Of Ezekiel's prophecy, uh, let me remind you of the previous two chapters, which dealt with the judgments against Tyre, the uh, city-state that is northwest of Israel, what would be considered uh, modern-day southern Lebanon, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but just north of uh, of Israel. Chapter twenty-six. Uh, describe for us Tyre's destruction by God for their greed and pride, their greed for seeking to profit from Jerusalem's destruction, and their pride for considering themselves as the greatest of all maritime merchants and traders controlling all the routes, both land and sea. Chapter 27 covered the lamentation of Tyre's destruction by God, but also of the many nations who saw their prophets dwindling and suffering from Tyre's destruction. God's lamentation upon them was because God does not rejoice when the wicked perish. But all of the known world that did business with Tyre, they mourn because they would lose. They would lose from Tyre's destruction. But the content of the present chapter, chapter 28 of Ezekiel, is going to be directed against the king of Tyre. Sometimes, as you'll notice, designated as prince of Tyre. Interestingly enough, it's going to start off talking about the prince of Tyre, then later on the king of Tyre. And I'm going to explain that when we get to the se- the next section after this. But uh, and this is why a preface of sorts is necessary to understand some of the illustrations given, because in a general sense, let me let me just say that the Lord Himself will be addressing the powers that be entire, but He's going to be addressing to them as if they are the, the they are Satan Himself. Uh, There's something you'll have to hold on to for next week, but nonetheless, he's going to be addressing them as, as if he's addressing it to Satan himself, because Satan indeed is the power behind the earthly kingdoms. He is the power behind the earthly kingdom, as it were. It is no mystery that the scriptures consider Satan as the prince of this world. In fact, we know from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that Paul sp- speaks of him as the prince of the power of the air as it says in verses 1 and 2 of uh, Ephesians 2 and you have uh, and you has he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience so very clearly there there is this there is this designation of the enemy of our souls, Satan, we call him the devil, but he being the prince of the power of the air. And it is no surprise that unbelievers follow the sway of the enemy of our faith, as told to us clearly by the Apostle John. John tells us in 1 John 5, verse 19, And uh, in reading the King James Version of this, it it gives us the word wickedness, let me read it, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Some of your translations may say that uh, uh, the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one or the evil one. Well, the full sense of the word wickedness actually denotes a person and therefore the whole world does lie in what we can consider an appointed grip of the evil one who could only be Satan. There really is only one Satan. And um, he appears, of course, primarily and and, and initially in Genesis chapter 3 in the form of this serpent that uh, deceived Eve. And, of course, we know what happened after all of that. But... You know, I go back to Genesis chapter 3 a whole lot because every lie that we see happening in the world today or every lie that we see uh, being perpetrated by by the enemy upon the world and upon the uh, unbelieving world is based upon one lie that has spread into many lies. And so as you go through the scriptures and we, we find places like we've, We've done in Second Thessalonians chapter two, and, and in other places where it talks about believing a lie, and being deceived to believe the lie. This is where it comes from, and it has to be noted that it is that far back that this lie had been perpetrated by by Satan himself. Now, are there other uh, evil entities? Of course, there are. There are of course demons uh, that are considered the fallen angels and. We're going to touch upon that in the next few weeks as we deal with Ezekiel chapter 28 and also with Isaiah 14. But we'll get to some of those things tonight and, and some next, next week. But as I said, the full sense of this word wickedness actually denotes this, this person. And therefore, the whole world lies in this grip of, of the evil one who could only be Satan. So we know this actually from the previous verse. So if you go just back one verse to verse 18, it says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, which means, uh, you know, a lot of times we say, well, we don't, we don't ever sin again, so whatever we do is not sin. No, no, no. It just means that we, that, that the believer in Jesus Christ does not sin uh, habitually. We all still sin. We all still make mistakes. But we don't sin habitually. We don't get up in the morning wanting to sin. You know, we, we actually get up in the morning wanting to serve God, and we want to do the right thing with people. So understand that. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. In other words, guards himself with the word of God. We guard ourselves by staying in fellowship with the Lord and all. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one touches him not. Now, that wicked one, the word poneros is the same word for wicked one as it is for wickedness in verse 19. Same word. And as you go throughout, every time the word poneros is used, it is, this, it is mentioning a person. It is mentioning a wicked one. And, uh, and then there is, uh, for example, go back a couple of chapters in First John. And you see in First John 2, verses 13 and 14, where John is writing to the fathers and the young men and also the, uh, the little children. He says in verse 13, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. It's the same word, poneros, right there. Same word. Same word in the Greek. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one, poneros. It is the same exact word. So when we see the word wickedness in verse 19 of First. John 5, it is really pointing to a person, and so that is how that works. But in any event, in effect, it's going to be the very evident thing that that we have two personalities then to consider in Ezekiel chapter 28. Two personalities. The first one would be the literal prince or king of Tyre, the one who actually was sitting on the throne when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar besieged and attacked the city, But behind this earthly ruler would be a king who would control the heart of the prince, filling him with pride, filling him with self-confidence, filling him with arrogance, leading him to defy the armies that God, the creator and overseer of all the universe, had sent against him, which we know then to be, of course, the, the, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. But it is the very same attitude that we saw in Isaiah chapter 14 where we, where we see a person named Lucifer, a fallen angel, dominate the mind and control the spirit of the king of Babylon. When you read fully Isaiah 14, normally we go to this passage that I'm going to read to you in just a moment, but when you read the whole of this particular passage during the time of Isaiah in, in, in his uh, time, There was a king of Babylon that was controlled and possessed by this this Lucifer or, as, as we know, Satan as well. But that king would have been Sennacherib. And if you've heard of the king Sennacherib, you say, well, isn't he the king of Assyria? Yes, he was the king of Assyria, but when Assyria conquered Babylon, he became actually the king of Babylon and he was actually crowned as king of Babylon as long as, as well as king of, of Assyria. But anyway, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15 is a passage many of you are familiar with where it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven... I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. I will ascend into heaven. This is what he says. This is what the enemy says daily. I will, I will. I will, five times, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. And just as we'll see in Ezekiel chapter 28, in Isaiah 14, he's also considered a man, so you have to understand that the, the same thing is going to happen in, in both particular passages. There is a man who is a king, but he is, because he is a king of a nation, of an earthly nation, and because he is not one who trusts in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he does not trust in the God uh, uh, who created the heavens and the earth, the one true and only God, then he is going to be led, and as, as, as it will, possessed and... and uh, and encouraged by by the devil himself. So it says, yet shall you be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Well, all of this throws a lot of light on what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, you know that this is the chapter that deals with the armor of God. And in, a, I'm sorry, in, a, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So Paul is very clear. Just goes straight at it and says, you know, the wiles of the devil is what we have to deal with. You know, the devil is wily. In other words, he's, he's, he's cunning, uh, deceptive. And he desires to destroy you. That's his whole—that's his whole desire, to destroy you. And so Paul says, "Put on the whole armor of God, for we wrestle not." Verse twelve: We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. Which in the in the course of, of things going on today, even in this room, you know, we can't see those things, but they're very present both those fallen angels as well as the angels of God, which we thank the Lord for being in our midst, but we can't see them. Besides, the Lord himself is in our midst because he said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there will I be. And this is where we are in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's a good, safe thing for us to do is to be in in him. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world Against spiritual wickedness in high places. The last two phrases that I just read against the rulers of, uh, I should say, yes, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places is literally wicked spirits in the heavenlies, the world rulers of this darkness. That is the, the literal Greek passage. Wicked spirits in the heavenlies, the world rulers of this darkness. Now think about what we were talking about this weekend when we're looking at the at the condition of the world today, and how the world is is, is gathering together in, in, in very recent days or in very uh, in, in just a few days, I should say, uh, to uh, try to bring, as they say, a two-state solution in 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 Israel and especially in Jerusalem between Israel and and the Palestinians. And yet, everything that has happened in the UN against Israel has happened from mostly all nations except for the United States. Every resolution until this past December, every resolution had been blocked by the United States until the last one. So, the world rulers of this darkness were busy with the world leaders. That are supposedly arrogant enough to think that they make all the decisions and that they can bring peace to this world. Paul says in verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And that is the position of the part and the and the person of, of God who is to stand against the wiles of the devil, who is to stand against the, this this flow of wickedness in this world. As long as we're here, that's what we're to do. And and when you read through the rest of that passage down to verse 18, notice how many times Paul says to stand or to withstand. That's That's what we're to do as believers in Jesus Christ in these last days. Well, seemingly the men of this world who hold the reins of government and exert domination on nations are more often but the puppets under the control of Satan's minions, themselves fallen angels doing all that they can to to thwart the execution of God's counsels. And that in itself, of course, will ultimately fail. Daniel chapter 10 sheds even more light on the issue of spiritual warfare, so I'd like for you to turn there, if you will, Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. By the way, if you hadn't picked up on this, this is the introduction to Ezekiel 28. Major introduction here. Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision." In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. So while all of this is going on, that that the Lord is is revealing some things to Daniel, uh, in the course of three weeks, he's he's just in, in, in this time of mourning. Now, three weeks would be 21 days. Still is. Still 21 days. And uh, all kinds of things are taking place, and, uh, you know, the, the description of what's happening in, in Daniel chapter 10 there. Uh, jump down to verse, verse 10. As, as Daniel is going through all of this, this struggle because of this, uh, you know, this spiritual warfare, actually, that he's going through. And, it, and, and then in verse 10 it says, And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. Notice the position he wants Daniel to take. Stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou thou didst set thine heart to understand. The first day of the 21 days. And to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. In other words, from the first day, God heard his cry. God heard his prayer. God's, God knew the morning, what it what it represented in his heart. And he says, and then that's the reason I've come. Your words were heard, and I'm come for thy words. But, notice verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, which is... The prince of the kingdom of Persia is not a person, a man. It is a spiritual being. It is a demon. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days. So the, the angel that is speaking to Daniel was the angel that was battling this one prince uh, of the kingdom of Persia. But in fact, what he says is in verse, uh, at the end of verse 13, he says, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, what we consider to be what is, as an art, archangel, Michael, one of the chief princes, Michael being the prince over Israel, uh, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So the prince of the kingdom of Persia was certainly not the man who sat on the throne of Persia but an evil demon seeking to keep the king from carrying out God's purpose regarding the restoration of his people. Because that was what Cyrus was appointed to do by God. And even though Cyrus was was a heathen king, as it were, yet God appointed him to do these things. So for us to understand then all of the stuff that's going on, and with these things in mind, let's, let's consider then, that in in our study of Ezekiel 28. Let's go back now to verse 1 of Ezekiel 28. It says, The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man, and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. Uh, Now, do you sense a little bit of sarcastic irony here? Because that's really what it is. Some translations may put this in a form of a question that that God is questioning. Are you (laughs) smarter than Daniel? Are you wiser than Daniel? But, uh, in fact, he's saying, oh, you're wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic hast thou increased thy riches and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. So now we want to talk about this this king because this was a real king. Historically, uh, there there actually is some discussion as to whether the prince of Tyre here was either Ethbaal or Itobaal II or Ethbaal the third, uh, who was at, at that time the uh, the uh, prince of Tyre or the king of Tyre, as it were. But because of the timelines of the kings of Tyre, Ethbaal the third is is the likely king mentioned here. Now you might think I'm making names up. I'm not. <laughs> Sounds good. It's, Itoba'al or Itoba'al or Ethbaal. <laughs> uh, no, uh, interestingly enough, Ethbaal the first is mentioned actually in First Kings chapter sixteen thirty one, and this is a very important person. In the, you know that uh, that we see mentioned here. He was called there in in verse thirty one of 1 Kings sixteen. He's called the king of the Zidonians. Now, how often do you hear in Scripture the two cities, Tyre and Sidon, mentioned? a lot? You do. I mean, you know, Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. They were two cities that, that were actually kind of like sister cities. So the king of one was the king of, well, of both of them. And so, Ethbaal I was called the king of Zidonians, and he was actually the father of Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you'll go to 1 Kings 16, and I, and I want you to mark this so you'll know that I'm not making names up here. Just kidding. But 1 Kings, I want you to see, because it, it plays deeply into the destruction of, of the northern kingdom of Israel because of all of those evil kings. 1 Kings 16.30, it, uh, it says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Uh, Ahab didn't need Jezebel to be evil. He was already wicked. Verse 31, and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So, now you see, you know, the the, the kind of, of, of kings that, uh, and, and, and people that these tyrants uh, Tyrians and the Zidonians were. And getting back to the III, due to the prosperity of his city, he thought himself as a god. And this is certainly a key to this judgment. The Lord tells him that he is just a man and not a god. That's pretty clear in our text. He's saying, you're, you're just a man, you're not a god. The New Age teaching established and emerging from the lie of the serpent in the garden that I mentioned earlier uh, back in Genesis chapter 3. This New Age teaching that has seeped into the church, actually telling us that, that we are God or we are little gods, as some apostate teachers have taught, and that we just need to recognize the God consciousness within us, borrowing from the old New Age teaching that's been around since the garden, because that was really the major lie. If you remember that this is what the serpent said to Eve, God just doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil, which what he was saying was he doesn't want you to be like him because, you know, you can be like God. In fact, you can be a God. So if we start hearing these kinds of things where we're told that we, we just need to, you know, most people don't know that they have a God consciousness in them. So when you discover that, then you can be like Shirley MacLaine and, and go around saying that you're a God. Now, for you young people, Shirley MacLaine's an old woman that uh, used to talk about being a God, you know, a new age teacher and all of that. She was an actress. Sort of. Anyway. Anyway. Well, it's unfortunate that, that that teaching is still alive and well among us. And unfortunately, it's in the church, too. Wouldn't it be better to let God's word stand and, and the words of men silence? I, I think it would be a lot better if we just let the word of God stand. So I want you to consider what God himself says, Isaiah 44. Because in Isaiah 44, 6-8, uh, the Lord says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts which is a great, great statement. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Who's that? That's Jesus. Not, you needed to know that. That's that's kind of a a, a, a very subtle way of saying, well, that's, your Redeemer is Jesus, and he's here with me. And thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and, and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. I Have I not told thee from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So God is saying it very clear. He says, I'm the first, I'm the last. Beside me there's no God. But who's beside him? His Redeemer, the Lord of Hosts. Do you you see a very interesting connection there? That's the Godhead in the Old Testament. But everybody else, you're not God. You can't be. And we know that the Lord will not share his glory with anyone. Go back a couple of chapters to Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9, where it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another. There's, you know, the, the, the glory always belongs to our God, and only to our God. And should only be given to our God. So this ruler of Tyre also had this enormous amount, enormous amount of pride. I mean, he was not only greedy, but he was and arrogant, and considering himself as God. But he was a very proud man due to the to what he considered a superior intelligence and wisdom. Granted, he obviously had the intellect and ability to oversee a government with its vast organization and large number of employees as as an economic and military center, which Tyre was at that time, but as a ruler, he was the personification of arrogance because of what he had in those skills and knowledge. And I can tell you this, there are a lot of world rulers and world leaders today that are at the height of their arrogance, I won't mention any names, But this prince of Tyre more than likely felt that he was wiser than the prophet Daniel, who actually was very well known for his wisdom and his work, all the things that he had done early on in his, in his young life as a believer in the God of Israel, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as, a, uh, as, a, uh, as an exile in Babylon. Daniel was known, and by the way, he was still living during that time. Still living during that time. So the king of Tyre or the prince of Tyre would have, would have known about Daniel. Would have heard. It, it was word that got around all the world, the known world at the time. But the biggest difference between the two, Daniel and the prince of Tyre, was that Daniel declared that his wisdom, his wisdom came from God. God. Read Daniel chapter 2 verses 27 and 28 where Daniel answered in the presence of the king and he said, the secret which the king has demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. You know, that, that was at the time where the, ki- the king had gathered all these people together to say, hey, I want somebody to interpret this dream that I had. But he wasn't telling them the dream. He said, I want you just to give me the interpretation. And whoever wasn't, you know, they were, they were really trying to pull his leg because they were saying, well, this is what it is. I mean, and of course, he knew it was right. I mean, there was a lot of people's heads going to be f- flopping off there because they were you know, messing around with the king. This is what Daniel said. But there is a God in heaven. Notice, verse 28. But there is a God in heaven and that, re- that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And he goes on and he tells them. And, and of course, Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly that this Daniel... Had interpreted the dream correctly and directly because it came directly from God. And so the using sarc- sarcasm and irony expressed by the Lord in verses three through five, when he says, "Oh, so you're you're wiser than Daniel," we we can't fool God. We can fool a lot of people. We can't fool God. Verse 5 in particular shows us that his pride in his material possessions, his his wealth, his money would all bring him down. Listen to what Paul tells the young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. In comparison to what this Prince of Tyre had and what he did with it, Paul says to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I think oftentimes people forget where they came from. And even if they write books about themselves and say, well, this is where I came from, they don't really focus on where they came from. They only focus on where they are and what they have and what they like to have in this world. But Paul said very clearly, We we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. Jesus himself, when he came, had to had to you know, here here was the here was the creator of the heavens and the earth. Here here was the person who was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and and yet he he humbled himself to come and to take on flesh. And when he was born, he didn't even have a place to be born. Except maybe in a barn. And everything was borrowed. He came into this world. He brought nothing into this world except salvation. For you and for me. But man comes into this world with nothing and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. How often do we we consider that the meals that we have and the clothing that we wear, that all of that is something that God really gave us. and, And, you know, we should just be very content with it. But then he goes on to say, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. And I say this always, but it doesn't say the it doesn't say for money is the root of all evil. We, we, we need it. Uh, we, this is how we Take care of our families and uh, take care of ourselves. But it is the love of money that's the root of all, all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. You know, if you have all of the things that are mentioned there in verse 11, I mean, you're pretty rich. You're pretty rich in God. And then he says in verse twelve, "Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses." So may we learn to be content with whatever lo- the Lord gives us, and, and may we never covet or, or, or lust after things that could become only a snare or a temptation in our lives. And so, in absolute arrogance, this king sat enthroned in his island fortress as though he were a god. Well, well, this is quite similar to what the Antichrist will one day do. If you remember what we've read often in this past year, as well as entering into this year, coming back to this because of the nearness of the time of, of the revealing of, of the Antichrist, what's more important to us is not that as much as the coming of Jesus Christ for his church, which is in 1 Thessalonians, by the way. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except their coming, falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God Sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is going to be exactly what the Antichrist will come to do. And uh, it begins with a covenant that uh, we can go back and read, but we're not going to do it today. But you can go back and read in Daniel chapter 9 about a covenant that is made. The prince, he's called the prince there. This this prince, which is uh, the Antichrist, will make a covenant with many for seven years. And uh, that covenant, of course, is made with Israel. Uh, because Israel today is still desiring to build a temple where they can begin their sacrifices and uh, offerings and in, in their worship on the Temple Mount, which right now is is occupied by by the, uh, the Palestinians and by the uh, and uh, by the Arab uh, people there. The the mosques that are on the Temple Mount today, you know, are an indication that we are still living in what is called the time of the Gentiles. I I mentioned it briefly this past weekend, but uh, uh, we need to read up more on it, and and we'll be talking about it more as today's uh, uh, approach, you know, the the things that are happening, uh, and we will talk about them as often as we can. But now we'll see the Lord pronouncing a terrifying sentence of judgment upon this ruler, uh, the Prince of Tyre, the reason being because of his pride or because in his pride the ruler believed that he was as wise and as self-sufficient as a God. Let's go on to verse 6 now. And Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. In other words, you'll die the same kind of death. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. You want to call yourself a God? Then call yourself a God before the person is going to kill you. But it's not going not to slow him down. He's not going to bow down to you. The point is, will you say before him that slayeth thee, I'm God? No. You're a man. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken, it saith the Lord God. That's considered by some that uh, even the people of Tyre uh, had within their their rites and rituals uh, circumcision for their children and stuff, for their male children. Uh, that's, that's a possibility, but uh, the point would be that the uncircumcised being those that were not in covenant with God as the Jewish people were to be. Uh, they would then die the deaths of the uncircumcised, which would be kind of considered as the death of the unbeliever. Uh, for I have spoken, as saith the Lord God. While the most ruthless nations would attack this prince, those nations being the ones that made up the Babylonian Empire. Because remember, Babylon, or any, any empire for that matter, I, you know, Assyria, as I mentioned earlier, Sennacherib, as the king of Assyria, conquered Babylon and then swept up Babylon as his people now, so he became the king of Babylon. So there's one nation un, you know, under him. And so the Babylonians and Assyrians then fought as uh, Assyrians, uh, for Sennacherib and any other nation that was swept up with them. So you, you get that picture that these are the strangers that are being mentioned as the ones who come to attack uh, Tyre. Uh, Babylon's brutality was, was well known throughout the world of that day, rising to the level of despising the beauty and the wisdom and the shining splendor of the ruler's throne. So, you know, usually a, a, a ruler in, in the world uh, builds for themselves great magnificent palaces wherewith, you know, they can show off their nation and the wealth of their nation. I mean, you, you hardly ever find any nation, even, you know, if you look at communistic nations or, 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 or br- brutal types of, uh, of nations where, you know, everybody is really... You know, if, if the communists were really honest with themselves, they would not have the Kremlin as, as, uh, as, as ornate as it is. You know, they would be like the people, you know. But you see, that's what makes it so false, is that the people still work for the leadership and are still burdened by them and oppressed by them. Let me give you one word, Cuba. I think we've, we've you know, we have a president today is saying that that was a triumph that we made in going to Cuba. But what triumph is it if we go there and still let... Their, their regime, you know, oppressed the people. The people are still oppressed there. You understand the point? You, you do? You understand the point? Okay. So here it is, you know, the, the levels of beauty that, that are reflected of the of the nation, whether the people are as, as prosperous or not. Tyre may have been that prosperous, because there was so much merchandising going on, so much trading going on. But Babylon didn't care, they just go down there and despise the beauty, the wisdom, the shining splendor, and they just drew their swords against it. The ruler would eventually die a violent death, which is verse 8 of our text there. He would die a violent death in the midst of the seas, meaning that he would die on the island and not on the mainland, because remember, it took 13 years, actually, uh, for Babylon to have, have destroyed the city on the mainland, but... Tyre, moved over to their to their uh, their island a half a mile off the, the coast, and they, they weren't able to be reached until Alexander the Great came to destroy them. But the ruler would prove to be a mere man and not a god. Like other men, he was just mortal. When he died, he would never be able to boast that he was an old man, for he would die young. He would die that death of the uncircumcised, like an outcast who dies the shameful death of an unbeliever. A king who claimed to be a god would be treated with, other, uh, with utter contempt. His corpse would be left unburied and thrown in the garbage heap. Simply, the rejection of the Lord is making a claim of self-sufficiency and an exaltation of self above God. Now, that you don't have to be a prince to do that. You don't have to be a ruler of a nation to reject God and to claim self-sufficiency or to be exalted uh, above God. To exalt yourself above God, you don't need to be a king. People do it every day. The person who chooses to walk through life without God is totally dependent upon the help of other people that can give that uh, that uh, they can give from people in times of need. You know that, that's that's how people walk without God today totally dependent on the help of others, or, you know, to think that they themselves can do it, to be self-sufficient, is it isn't really probable. It's, and, and, and honestly, it's not even possible that we can live totally dependent without the help of others. But it also means exalting the human race as its own God, when you walk without God. If you consider the vastness of the universe and the intricacies of the human body, man is, is anything but a god. Man is anything but a god. I, I'm, I'm sure I've shared this, this story before, but uh, the late, great boxer, Muhammad Ali, when he was flying to one of his bouts, or maybe just where, wherever he was flying, he was, he was taking an a airline flight, he was told by a flight attendant to put on his seatbelt. And Ali said emphatically, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant replied, Superman don't need no airplane. So think about that for just a moment. We sometimes make ourselves greater than what we really are. The Bible says, don't think of yourselves better than what you are. Don't think of yourselves greater than what you are. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And so to exalt ourselves as the rulers of our own destiny is utterly foolish. It's a foolish thing. We're told in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works, and there is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and see God. They are all gone aside. It says, "They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one." And and of course you have to understand that that this this statement by by the psalmist is actually said twice. It's, it's said here in, in Psalm 14. It's also mentioned in, in Psalm 53. But uh, the, whole, the whole point is that those who are without God, those who, and, and actually those who want to be without God, because the fool has said in his heart there is no God, is, is saying, you know, you know, we don't want there to be God, but that's what makes it foolish is you can't get away from the very fact that there is a God. In fact, that is what Romans chapter one teaches us. Paul says, you know, it's foolish to think that, that you that you're an atheist, you know, because everybody knows there's a God. Somehow there is this innate understanding that some there, there is a God, but you don't want to be led by this God. And this is one reason why when judgment comes in the last days. That there isn't going to be a person that is going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know. God is just and he's righteous and he knows every heart. So we don't have to worry that somebody's going to get into hell unfairly. The fact of the matter is, how many of us are going to get into heaven fairly? <laughs> We would almost have to think it's kind of unfair that some of us are in heaven with with this fairness mentality in our you know in our brains. Sometimes I oftentimes think that we would probably say about the, the you know the uh, uh, the thief on the cross next to Jesus that Jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise. You know most people would say that's unfair. He lived his whole life as a as a thief, but you see that's the mercy of God. That, can you understand it? I don't understand it. I don't understand how I can be a believer today and and, 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 have, and have the assurance of salvation. Well, I'll tell you this, even as a pastor of a church, I, I cannot get beyond the, the, the humility that, that this thought puts me under, that I'm not worthy of this, fact of the matter is, who is? Who is? That is what mercy is all about. That is what grace, the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How amazing it is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I didn't see before, but now I see. We were as good as dead without Jesus. A person who does not know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, has never believed in him, has never confessed him as their Lord, is as good as dead. Though you may be as fit as a fiddle, that's why the psalmist says there is none that doeth good, no, not one. But in closing, the encouragement for you tonight is is really found in, in James chapter four, verses six to ten where James says, but he, speaking of Jesus, giveth more grace. That grace that I just spoke about. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. That's the prince of Tyre. (laughs) He resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. But Verses 7 through 10 tell us what we need to do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, means to come under God. Come under his leadership. Come under his love. Come under his grace. Come under his word in obedience. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. The one thing that we're going to find out is that you maybe, you, maybe you never believe that there was a devil at all, or maybe you believe too much in a devil, but whatever the case may be, one thing for sure is that when you come to the Lord, you know that there is a God, but because of that, there's also a devil, so you need to resist him because he's going to fight every day to get you away from the God who loves you. The devil is going to fight every day, not not personally, since that's what his minions are about, and those minions are not little yellow guys with glasses on, you know, or... goggles and some of the minions are not like, you know, one-eyed. What do you call those? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, that's a tremendous statement. If you resist the devil, resist him, he flees. Because he knows who, who who's with you. He knows who you're with. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw nigh to God means to draw near. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I, I, I like to take people to this particular verse when they say, I don't know where God is. Well, can, well you got to draw near to him. If you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Pretty simple. Kind of hard to miss the interpretation here. Really simple. You draw near to him. I mean he's he's massive, man. He's big, he's great, he's awesome. He's he alone is awesome, by the way. Then he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. And and what this does, what this says is look. There comes a time when you need to come to the realization that before you can really understand the joy of the Lord, you need to see your heart for what it is as a a sinner. And know that it was in that condition that Jesus went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for you and for me. It's a time to... To really be serious about our salvation. But then notice verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He lifts you up. He blesses you. He becomes your joy. He becomes your all in all. He becomes everything that you need for life and godliness. And therefore, when we keep those things in mind, we will never be like the Prince of Tyre who thought he was so good and so wise that he might as well have been God himself. But God says, no, they're just me. And you're not him. And you're not me. God is above all his creation just to let us know there's only one God But our God is a God of mercy and grace. And our God is a God of love. He is a God that is holy, holy, holy. He is a God that is righteous. He is a God that is just. And you have to know that God is a God that hates sin. He hates sin. So we need to hate sin like he hates sin. we need to love one another as he loves us. And as he's forgiven us, we're to forgive others. And all of these things we're to do until the day that Jesus comes, which can be very soon because of the world condition that we we see before us. So now's the time to get right with the Lord. Now's the time to get our lives in, in order with God. Now's the time to make sure that we know him and he knows us. Because the scriptures are clear that one day Jesus will have to say to some people who have been playing church, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Depart from me. I would not want that to be said of any of you here or any in in this church or anybody in the body of Christ at all or anybody for that matter. But we need to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus. As we see the world going in a, in, a, in a terrible direction, Jesus said, keep looking up and lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. That is more true for us than ever because of where we are in time. So let's get ready for Jesus. Amen? All right, let's stand.